Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Airy, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, COVID-19 coverage. Um, today, we're going to be talking about how do we forecast the new normal. We have a wonderful panel with us today, um, representing from optometry to comprehensive ophthalmology, all the way to subspecialists. And we're going to talk about what is it looking like uh, in the next couple of weeks. So Blake, with that said, why don't you introduce our guests? Yeah, Gary, I think that it's uh, an important times. We're going to all try to figure out um, you know, how we're going to be seeing patients uh, in the near term uh, and on into the future, things like telemedicine and virtual consults and, you know, all that as we interact with our subspecialists and also as we interact with our OD partners are going to become important topics. So uh, we've, uh, we've got quite a cast to help us kind of walk through that. Uh, first, we have Justin Schweitzer from uh, Vance Thompson Vision up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, and we also have John Kitchens, a retina expert from Kentucky. John has the honor of being Gary's uh, retina specialist. So uh, we're going to try to find out just how good of a cataract surgery uh, surgeon Gary is uh, during this uh, podcast. Um, and then, of course, we have Icomed from uh, Toronto, Canada. Thank you for being with us, everyone. So, um, you know, I, I kind of would like to throw the first question to you. Um, one of the, one of the uh, things that you taught me early on is one of the most important attributes of a serious surgeon is their hairstyle. Um, and I've been following you on Instagram with the hashtag COVID hair. Can you talk a little bit about with all the different hair care technologies out there, how are you coping during these unprecedented times? Well, you know, most of you know, I'm very well suited to cope with these times because they're actually usual times for me, meaning I don't really care uh, what my hair does. But, but since you mentioned COVID hair, you know, we, we started this challenge to help support PPE for healthcare workers by doing this challenge and supporting uh, these initiatives. And so I appreciate everyone who took part in that challenge. Uh, John was kind enough to shave for this challenge, so we appreciate that as well. Uh, but yeah, it's been something to kind of remind people to stay home. Don't go out and cut your hair. And, uh, and protect uh, our healthcare workers by uh, ensuring they have enough PPE. Totally love it. Just happy to participate in that. So, can you talk to us a little bit before we kind of dive into the topic today? What's going on in Canada? Um, you know how it differs from what's going on here in the states, and you know kind of what your day to day has, has been looking like the past few weeks as a glaucoma specialist. I'd probably say things are probably pretty similar. You know, we have a few hotspots, not like as bad as in the U.S., but we have a few hotspots. Canada is a very rural country. And so, uh, you know, the incidence varies quite a bit depending on the urbanization of what, what area we're speaking about. Um, you know, and overall, I've been, I've been pretty proud of the country in terms of being able to kind of flatten this curve, as we say. And we seem to be kind of at our peak or just passing our peak. And now the question is going to be, when do we get back into more near normal uh, and still maintain some degree of safety? And that's kind of what we're all grappling with, I'm sure, like many of you as well. Like many of you, uh, you know, about a month ago, we basically had to halt all elective work that we did. And we are essentially are just providing uh, urgent and emergent care. And I'm sure we'll be speaking about this, but we've really now explored and really expanded our virtual care platform in a very short period of time. And, and, and already I saw innovation happening in that area. So that's kind of where we've been doing. And of course, we've been spending a lot of our free time as much as we can and webinars and educating ourselves and, and developing ourselves personally as well. Yeah, John, I, thank you, Ike. John, I'd like to ask how things are going um, with you right now. You know, we are obviously uh, in the same city. We practice very closely together. Actually, uh, one of our offices, we can walk across the hall and see each other, which is fantastic. Um, have you been seeing people actually, you know, people, we know, retinal detachments are still happening. Macular edema is still happening, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm, I'm worried that people are not coming in because they're worried that they're going to catch COVID-19. So what are you seeing in terms of the amount of people presenting with pathology compared to what you were seeing previous to this? Because, I mean, are you worried that people are sitting at home with detachments, other things, and just not getting care? Yeah, Gary, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that is happening because our new patient volume is, is going down out of proportion with what we'd normally see from from patients with new wet macular degeneration or uh, detachments and tears. We still see some, but it's just not at the same level. You know, here in Kentucky, we've done a really good job of flattening that curve. 
and we have roughly about 3,000 cases. Um, what's shocking is, is the hospitals are empty. So we practice next to a hospital and the parking lot is empty every single day and our medical office building is empty. We're still seeing patients, but I would say we're about 40% of our normal volume. And we've taken a lot of steps to try and lower our volume to allow for social distancing. So we've tried to put off any of those patients that are coming back for four, five, six month visits for just kind of routine follow-up. Um, we've tried to expand out our diabetic follow-ups a little bit more, try to increase injection intervals, try to facilitate quicker throughput through the, the clinic. And when it comes to surgery, we're really only doing detachments. And we're tending to do those more at the hospital, uh, which has lots of availability now because they're not doing elective surgeries. So yeah, I'm afraid that we have patients that are sitting at home, particularly with wet macular degeneration, that aren't being seen. And I think that that's because the, the primary eye care providers, the optometrists, the general ophthalmologists, they aren't seeing these patients. They're not screening these patients um, to be able to get them to us. Yeah. Ahead, what about buddy. you, Justin? What's going on in the, in the optometry space? I feel like now more than ever is a time that where collaborative care is important. Many of our OD colleagues you know, had completely shut down and they were sending patients to us to, to, to help out with their, with their care. What, what, kind of, what kind of things are you hearing from your colleagues about you know, stuff that they're still going in to see or, or are they completely shutting their doors and sending those patients to, to ophthalmologists or what? Yeah, I mean, in, it's a mix. I mean, in, in our area right now, there's plenty of our um, of my colleagues that are still open seeing just emergent and, and urgent. Um, they're not doing any routine eye care, of course. Uh, but you do hear of colleagues that have, you know, completely shut the doors for the time being and are, are not seeing patients and, and triaging those patients to, to places that are doing emergent and urgent. And, um, you know, the challenge right now, you know, I'm in the, in the tertiary care center with, you know, working with ophthalmology um, is, is how do you stay connected with these patients too through all of this? And, you know, I've, we've implemented doing some Facebook live events to, to try to keep in touch with our patients to know that we're available. And some of my colleagues have done that too. Some of the optometry community is, is trying to stay in contact with their patients, knowing, letting them know that they're still available through virtual uh, telemedicine visits. Um, or letting them know that, hey, time is coming when we'll be open again and we'll be available to you. Um, but that, that's the challenges right now is, is just emergent urgent. And, and um, when, when can we start doing you know, the routine, uh, traditional comprehensive eye exams? So you know, we've got people on this, on this webinar that are really at the top of, of their game in, in every level other than Blake. Um, everyone else really top notch. Uh, just kidding, Blake. So I would love to have the conversation about how, where do we go from here? You know, we know that we've sort of hit the giant pause button on, on, you know, elective care and ophthalmology and optometry. You know, a lot of what we do falls into that category. Uh, John and Ike are sort of on a different area where, where folks, you know, really have emergent needs that need to be taken care of. But as we push this giant reset button and we try to get back in, into actually providing services for patients, I really think we're going to have to be super respectful of their time and how many places we make them go and how many times we make them go see different doctors. Do you guys see the possibility of changing the way we collaborate together, either through telemedicine, not traditionally like from the doctor's office to the patient, but maybe even from our, from maybe like an optometry office to a cataract surgeon or a comprehensive ophthalmologist to a retina specialist? Um, Ike, what do, you, what do you think about that? Do you think there's a role for increased telemedicine, not just in the traditional, um, you know, patient home to doctor, but maybe from one doctor's office to another? Yeah, we've thought a lot about this. And I often say like, you know, people ask, what have I been doing? Well, I've been innovating while quarantining. And I've been thinking about all the different ways that this can happen. I must say, there's so many variables on this. And above all, of course, a lot of this is going to depend on reimbursement. And that's going to drive a lot of behavior. So that goes without saying. But putting that aside, I think that uh, there's a new normal going to be out here that's already kind of happening already. And we've kind of tried to phase it out in terms of phase one, phase two, phase three, post-COVID. Uh, and I think we will get back to some near normality, but it'll take time. It could take, you know, a series of uh, months before we get into that situation. Um, we already are, I think, I think the virtual platform and the telemedicine uh, platforms are already kind of, you know, uh, out there. I think that that's going to not, that's going to continue to evolve and, and, and manifest in, in a new norm. And I totally agree with you. I mean, we, we are setting ourselves up for a communication between 
our optometry offices and ophthalmology and ophthalmology to ophthalmology, you can imagine you want to reduce the amount of uh, point of contact for patients, uh, even once we get back out into semi-normal hours and, and routines. And we could imagine this being done, patient walks into an optometry office and the consult is done virtually by an ophthalmologist with the data that's been given to them by the optometrist as one example. Uh, we're doing a lot of work now, of course, with patient-focused uh, uh, applications on the web. I mean, between a smartphone, a visual acuity, an Amsler grid, an online visual field, we can get a lot of information from a patient uh, in terms of what's happening and, and guide them in terms of their care. So it does raise a lot of questions, of course, in terms of interprofessional relationships we have to grapple with. But the, uh, but the ability to do this and then throw an AI in there as well, uh, I mean, I think, it's, I think it can be quite, you know, quite a large potential. We've also developed these uh, sort of you know, rapid centers of diagnostic testing so people can, can sweep in and sweep out literally in, in a matter of minutes and get at least a fundus photograph and a, and a MAC OCT and an IOP by an eye care and get that done within minutes and have a whole crew to clean up after and move on. And even with that information, you can imagine, we can, it's amazing how much we can actually do with that little information. And now if we can work out an interprofessional relationship where there's again only one point of contact or minimizing contact until the patient requires surgery, I mean, I think we, we have the license to do that now. And I think once we get out of COVID a bit, I think the precedent's already been set. So I think, I mean, I've said a lot here, but I think there's a lot of ways I think this can manifest uh, out in, in, this, in this way. And what about, like, what about, you know, home IOP monitoring? One, one of the biggest, you know, um, you know, points of, of, of uh, concern with doctors about having glaucoma patients out, you know, at home without us being able to see them is being able to get an accurate IOP. Um, I feel like if we can get an accurate IOP and we knew what their target IOP was and we were able to tele, you know, do telecommunications to make sure that they're taking their drops appropriately, um, you know, I feel like that would eliminate a lot of risk. Are, are, are there any real deal technologies that we can implement now or are there some in the, in the next year or two that, that, that are coming out that could be great solutions we can count on? Well, you can imagine, you know, I, I just was part of a couple of consultant calls on IOP sensors, and, and you can imagine the interest there, uh, particularly now, and we've just accelerated the, the pathway, particularly in animals. I, you know, there's no, there's no problem operating on animals during COVID, and so you can imagine the potential there. But that aside, that's still a few years away. I mean, we've been doing, for example, eye care home. Uh, you know, we've been doing this for years now as a way to look at patients and their IOPs over, uh, over a 24-hour period over a week. And, and this is, you know, the ability for patients to get trained to use eye care home and take it home and do it, even to rent it out if, if they can't actually uh, acquire the device. I, I think I see that as a, as a very easy solution. And, and we've been implementing uh, these type of solutions to help those patients. Um, I think that's a very, very simple way to do this. And a technology that already exists and that I think is pretty validated in our experience. And again, it takes away that need to bring a patient in. And of course, it addresses some of the issues around safety and sterility as well. John, what about um, the 4C device? Um, that's a home monitoring device for AMD. Could you talk about that? I know that you've been working with that company. I've, you and Tom, I've, t I've heard you guys talk about Tom Stone, uh, one of your partners. I've heard you guys talk about it before. Are you seeing this working in your patients who are using it um, right now to know if they need to come in and get an injection? Yeah, so Gary, the 4C home device is, uh, is by Nodal Vision, and what it is is kind of like an Amsler grid on steroids. It's, it's very tech-related, but it's not that hard to set up, and it looks just like a little pair of binoculars mounted on a stand, and it works off the theory of uh, preferential hyperacuity perimetry, and it picks up wet AMD earlier than normal. Um, it does work, uh, and for a particular subset of patients, it's great. Usually patients who have had high-risk drusen in one eye and maybe wet in the fellow eye, so it really picks it up at an astounding rate of 20-40 or better vision. Upwards of 94% uh, of patients are detected at that level. I think more exciting from the same company, Nodal Vision, is the home OCT test. Uh, and they're working on a, a portable, very small footprint home OCT that's going to be easy for patients to use that will give us the quality of a Cirrus OCT, um, and, but a three millimeter scan that'll go right through the fovea. And we'll be able to do that over and over and over. I feel like that's probably more of what we need for our patients as far as determining if they need to come in and get treated and whatnot. Justin, what about, um, you know, I'm, I, I do some co-management. We work with uh, uh, RODs. Uh, we work alongside each other uh, at Williamson Eye Center, but I do a little bit of co-management with outside ODs, and I'll occasionally get a text message, hey, Blake, I'm sending you this patient. Uh, this is what's going on with him, or I'm sending a cousin or a family member or whatever it is. Um, 
and or I'm sending some I'm sending this patient and she's really concerned or, or, or worried about cataract surgery um, you know just a heads up and I often think man if there was like a little kiosk or something in that OD's office where they can go in and have a, a virtual conversation with me or even Gary mentioned what if we rented out a lane you know one lane of an OD's office where we had all of our equipment in there and we're able to do a virtual exam so they didn't have to come and see us uh, you know in person until the surgery date is that something that that you would vision as, as being possible and um, what do you think your colleagues in the optometry space would think about that yeah I mean I think it's going to be a, a very important to obviously minimize how many visits where the patients need to go they're going to start in the optometrist's office they're going to get an examination there do they need to go then to the the referral center to see to see you for example Blake for cataract surgery and have another evaluation uh, that's two visits it's two extended visits how do we cut down on that I think, you know, a lane rental, that, that makes sense. You know, there's been discussion. Do you have a, do you get a boat or excuse me, a bus? And do you put all the equipment that you need that your IOL master, your, you know, whatever you need to do your evaluation for your cataract evaluation or your, or your glaucoma evaluation that involves glaucoma surgery and have that all there. And you spend a certain amount of time uh, in a specified location where you can examine these patients and prepare them for surgery. I think, you know, to me, the exciting part about telemedicine is, is kind of the hybrid component of it. And, and Ike already touched on this, but how can we get a patient in really quickly, get the tests we need, get them out the door, and then do the rest of it through a telemedicine platform at my house or in my office. And I think that can work both for ophthalmology and optometry. I think optometrists can do the same thing. How quick can we get them into our office, do the tests that we necessarily need in the clinic, but then get them out as quickly as possible and do the rest of it away from having multiple people, multiple patients in the clinic. And Gary, Gary, I think that, you know, this even works with primary care doctors too. I mean, if you think about it, if they had, you know, if we were to rent a lane and have a, you know, a retina cam in their lane, um, you know, being able to do diabetic uh, you know, exams virtually, that, that these are all kind of things that, that I've been thinking of. But in the OD space, I mean, if you had a virtual, you know, if you had a digital slit lamp, you know, um, I don't know of anything that they would, uh, you know, besides that and all their testing, their topo and OCT Mac, you know, you could do a biometry the day of surgery, but, you know, you could kind of do the same day cataract surgery model, but you're, you're still having that meeting with them face to face talking about, um, you know, different, different cataract surgery options. I think that's something that would be very useful in the future. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think Ike mentioned this, you know, the way legislation is going to be uh, with reimbursement is going to drive a lot of this. But what's interesting is, you know, COVID-19 is just a new challenge, which in many ways is an opportunity. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways we could have already digitally um, transformed our world like this Zoom call. We could have done this six months ago. We just all learned how to do Zoom because we can't see each other face to face. So, all, all of these things are available. COVID is giving us the, the kick in the pants to do some of these things we probably should have been doing already. You know, I, I, I've sort of been thinking about this. You know, when you see a patient or an optometrist sees a patient or I see a patient, you go through a number of, of layers, right? You have to gather information. You've got to make a diagnosis. Then you have to do some level of education and you have to treat the patient. So whatever, whatever the problem is, you sort of go through those phases. The only thing that really requires um, in-person on, on some level is, is really the, the examination and the treatment, right? So I can imagine a patient who comes to, to uh, one of Justin's referring optometrists or one of mine, and they've got a cataract, they've got mild dry macular degeneration and uh, asymmetric increased cup to disc ratio. And they could, you know, dial me up on Zoom and say, hey, what do you think? Say, yeah, cataract looks good. You know, happy to take it out. Dial up John, say, hey, what do you think of this uh, dry macular degeneration? Here's the OCT. Yeah, it looks fine. You know, these are all, these are, you know, these are, you know, hard, hard drusen, you know, dry, you're going to be fine. Ike says, I don't know. I think we should definitely think about uh, doing, you know, a MIGS device because this looks like something that's going to, um, you know, possibly progress. You know, it's, all at the physical location of the optometrist's office, but now you're dialing in and getting all the, all the consultants you know, in real time, and that patient ended up, ended up getting three specialist consults in the space of 15 minutes. 
and they come into my office or wherever, get the cataract surgery, get a MIGS device, and we can all feel good about the fact that we, you know, sort of supercharged what we used to do and would take the patient a month to go and get all these consults. Um, so I, I feel like this is, and I hate to dominate, I don't mean to dominate the conversation, but, you know, as I'm thinking about this, I mean, John, does it, or I, do you think that's possible in our near future? And, and before you answer that, um, just for the participants on the call, uh, we do have live Q&A and uh, we are reading those. We're trying to sort of get to those. So if you have questions or comments, please feel free to, uh, to type those in. But uh, John or Ike, either one of you, what do you think about that as, a, as, the, as the future? Yeah, Gary, I'll, I'll tell you that I think that the way telemedicine has been set up here in the United States has really been a bit more directed towards primary care. And getting these patients in to get certain parameters checked off so that primary care can achieve a higher level of billing. And I guess conceptually, it's a good idea, but it's really not what we need. You know, I can tell you that as a retina specialist, if you send me a good optos and you send me an OCT, we can figure out 95% of everything, you know? And so that's where I think something like that would fit in an optometric office because most optometrists, all optometrists really have OCTs and a lot of them have optos uh, imaging. So with those two things, I think we can give really great feedback. I think what it's really up to is, is our societies and our, our you know, professions working together to go right now at this very opportune time to legislators and say, this has got to change. It's got to get easier from a HIPAA standpoint. It's got to get easier from a Stark standpoint so that we can do these things um, for the betterment of our patients. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that, of course. And I mean, the first, the first visceral reaction I think most people will have is, is again, just about, uh, you know, uh, competition, about uh, scope of work and all these things that come up. And again, I'm pretty progressive on these matters, but they will, uh, and they have certainly in the past created uh, challenges. So I think we have to still uh, understand some of, these, uh, some of these issues. And I think that uh, there's also going to be just an availability issue. I mean, a lot of us are not going to start, I think people are going to be busy. I'm not sure how it is in your neck of the woods, but even in the best of times, I mean, we're, we're slammed. I mean, we're slammed with patients, we're slammed with urgent cases and stuff. So how, to have instant on availability, I'll be realistic to you. I don't know how realistic it is for some of us. On the other hand, to provide virtual consults, not real time or advice, I think that would be, that could be manageable. Like I said, the reimbursement piece is going to be a driver of that. Uh, ophthalmology practices that rely on diagnostic testing and other things to be able to sustain uh, the, the work. I think are going to be impacted by this. So there's a lot of things to unpack, and I would just be careful rushing into that that model necessarily without thinking of all the different uh, collateral effects. I won't call it damage, but collateral effects that could impact that. And then we had, the last thing we have to say is that listen, I mean, we went to medical school, went to residency for a lot of years, um, not to look at a scan and basically you know do a surgery and be a technician. If we had that attitude, you know, hello, let's replace ourselves. Um, we have to still and emphasize and people need to know this and our patients and our payers and our society needs to know this, the value of a physician, uh, the art of medicine and what, we, what goes into that and not dummy it down into basically saying, look at a scan, uh, yes, no checkbox and move on it. I, I Listen, I, I love the automation on some of these things and we have to move that way, but uh, we have to remember what the role of us as physicians are. And so this will vary depending on your specialty, of course. And ophthalmology is probably most prone to be able to be more of an automated uh, process, which many of us do in our office already, uh, assembly line is what, as one may call it in some cases, uh, not the best term perhaps, but I think uh, I want to make sure that people know the value. And I think certainly for myself and my practice, I don't think people come, they refer to me because of my ability to look at a scan or my ability to do a surgery even. I think it's because of what I am as a patient to a physician. Now that can be done over video as well. And that can be done over, you know, over other ways in the media medium. But the art, we cannot neglect on that one. I think we've got to be really mindful and careful of that as well, just to kind of give a bit of a, a pause to think about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to just mention, you know, I, one thing I worry a little bit about based off of some of the comments Ike says is some of the small things that are so important in outcomes from, from different surgeries. You know, cataract surgery, for example, with um, a presbyopic IOL, treating the ocular surface is so huge. You know, if we don't have patients in, in our offices, doesn't matter if it's optometry, ophthalmology, and we're not able to examine the surface, put some stain in the eye, um, run some of those diagnostic tests that, that we all do, and then manage that, how's that gonna affect cataract outcomes too? And those are easy things that I think can slip through when you're doing um, telemedicine exams because you just don't have the patient physically there to be able to do that stuff. 
Yeah, I think it's important that that if you did have someone virtually doing that, you know, it would it would be you know an OD that you, that you trust to to you know, optimize the ocular surface and you take their word for it. You could also look at the topography, all the point of care testing, osmolarity, etc. Um, so you'd have to have a lot of trust in whoever your partner was in that space. I do think that you know one of the things that I brought up is is how busy our our, our subspecialists are. And sometimes, even though we have great relationships with our subspecialists in time, sometimes it takes a few weeks for us to get our patients seen. So I wonder if we could communicate them with them using some type of portal, um, you know, to get some type of consult to help us with our patients. Maybe we wouldn't have to refer so many. So I think that would be an well, interesting- Blake, I, I think you make a good point. I think that the, 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 the three areas which I think can be really, really powerful and you could do it now is triaging, triaging for sure. Um, get an instant triage and say basically today, within a few days, within the week or a month, that could, that, that's a helpful thing, as you said. I think the collaboration, I think this has the potential to really enhance collaboration and strengthen our relationships with our referring community, whether ophthalmology or optometry or, or primary care. And number three, I mean, we've been talking about new patients, but how many patients do we have to follow up that we basically have to do diagnostic testing on? Like in my practice, we have tons of fields, tons of OCTs and glaucoma, and we're following them up X, X number of months. Well, well, that certainly is more automated at that point. I've already developed relationships with my patient already. And if they can see somebody else to do it, they can get diagnostic testing at some place, wherever it is. And I get that, I simply get the parameters they need to look at. I mean, that certainly will, will be efficient. That could save money to the system. We may not like that, mind you, from that perspective. But it also will enhance the, you know, the following of the patient as well. So, I mean, there's, those are the three areas I think that immediately we can, we can, we can and it be easier to uh, employ telemedicine rather than kind of looking at the brand new patient and, totally changing everything. I think that we kind of look at this in stages. And right now we need to do it because of safety reasons, but the argument has to be made, this is better because it's better quality, it's more efficient and it saves money uh, depending on who you are in the system. And for optometrists, uh, post-operative care, certain post-operative visits, when you're co-managing with an optometrist, you know, we're doing a lot of the post-operative care, which post-operative visits can we do from a telemedicine standpoint? Uh, I think there's quite a few of them. We're talking, you know, with, 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 traditional cataract surgery might be tougher with certain glaucoma procedures, but can we do some of these traditional cataract post-operative visits just by telemedicine without having to bring the patient in every single time for each post-operative visit? It reduces, you know, some of the strain that's going to be on optometry as well, doing all those post-operative care visits. Yeah. You, you know, I think what, what, what we're talking about, you know, off the grid has always been, or at least we've always tried to be a place where we talk honestly about things that, not everyone agrees on, you know, and, and I, I appreciate you bringing the, the sort of the other side of, of the conversation. But what we're talking about right now is, is this a time um, where we break some paradigms, you know, where we've just sort of always done it this way. So it's always the way it's going to continue to be done. And I do think this, this does provide us an opportunity to pause and say, well, why do we see patients back at the one week or the one day in person? How much of that exam post cataract surgery could we do by telemedicine? And at this point, does that make more sense because it's actually less risk for the patient? Going forward, it may not. We may go back to more traditional habits, but I do think it's a, it provides us an opportunity to sort of pause and look at everything we do to say, could we do it differently? Would it be better to do it differently? Are we doing some things that we don't even need to do perhaps? And how do we streamline things? I think you said it really well, Gary. We should absolutely pause. We should absolutely be thinking about this and questioning every single thing we do. I know I've done that. I've questioned a lot of what we're doing in our practice and how we're managing patients and managing clinical conditions. We should absolutely do that. And I think this is exactly what the kind of questions they need to be asked. When we change paradigm, though, we also have to think about what is the model we're trying to change, the stakeholders involved, uh, the inertia to build up to make that change, whether you do it in a, in a drastic or a subtle way. So I think this is all part of that discussion. I think you're asking all the great questions, and I hope that we are. I think you handle these crises, and I've seen my colleagues do different things. I see some of my colleagues, and again, not to judge, but I think are really paralyzed by what to do, and they're and they're anxious, and it's paralytic, and it's personal, of course, for your personal health and your and your own family safety, but also your practice and your employees and your business, and you get paralyzed. And others look at this as an opportunity uh, to just change everything and, and and really question things. So I think we're all going to have a role in that and to play in that. I think this is the kind of discussion that is very helpful with that. And the last thing that I mentioned is. I, I'm sure like you guys, I have had so many calls now from, from tech companies and from, inter, and, and from others uh, that are accelerating the work that's being done on AI work, on technology work. 
I mean, I, I just got a call from somebody that basically you can use a smartphone essentially, or they're looking at this to assess an IOP. And I won't go to detail on that, but I mean, incredible work that, you know, these, these people are just waiting for these moments now to just accelerate that, that work. And I think that that's the kind of thing that this, this thing will stimulate. We'll look back on this and go, wow, this basically, just like we're going to look back from this nine months from now, and we're going to go, wow, we have a whole ton of COVID kids, right? Because all you guys are home and women are home, right? Seriously, no joke. Right. Uh, right. I have four kids, I'm done. But, you know, we're going to look back on this and say, wow, that was an innovation that kind of got spurned because of COVID, because of the pandemic. That'll be a positive side to, side to this. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I think another thing we should think about with all this is um, immediate sequential bilateral cataract surgery. You know, and, and again, it's sort of, we've not done it, just not the way things are done. It's not standard of care. Um, but there's not, other than the payers not really wanting to reimburse for that work, I don't know that there's a good scientific reason right now why we're not doing bilateral cataract surgery. Uh, John, you see, you see, you know, when cataract surgery goes wrong, um, what are your thoughts about, about that? I mean, as a retina specialist, if cataract surgeons started, started to adopt that. Yeah, Gary, I think that, you know, realistically right now we're kind of in a purgatory when we do uh, cataract surgery. If you're waiting a week or two, well, you're not waiting long enough to see CME show up. And so if you're saying, gosh, you know what? I'm going to do an uh, surgery and then I'm going to wait a couple of weeks to make sure nothing went wrong. You may cover yourself for endophthalmitis, but frankly speaking, the risk of endophthalmitis is so unbelievably low that I think, you know, you'll know if you have a TAS outbreak or anything such as that. So I guess the only thing that it leaves on the table, assuming you're checking everything pretty thoroughly preoperatively, is just unexpected refractive outcomes uh, that may change what you do for the fellow eye from a retinal standpoint. I don't know that I see much wrong uh, unless there's a systemic breakdown in your OR with doing uh, rapid uh, succession cataract surgery. Yeah, Gary, I think that, you know, the financial piece has been the big piece that's been holding people back. If you own an ASC like we do and it's inside of our clinic, it's just been a non-starter. If there's, if there's something that, you know, uh, that, the, that the rules can be changed to sort of mitigate that a bit, I think that would be great. But the other side of that is, you know, cataract surgery keeps getting cut and cut and cut. It may not even be, it may not even be worth it at some point, you know, or the, or the value of doing it bilateral simultaneous will be more than the potential cuts you take. And maybe you can even introduce the idea of balanced billing somehow. Maybe a patient could pay, you know, something in there for, for uh, to have that convenience of coming once instead of twice. I mean, I don't know. There's a bunch of different models that people would have to look at. Yeah, Gary, you know, we, we've been we've been doing this in Canada, many, many, not many, but not everybody have been doing this for years now. And, and of course, in the US with managed care, in some settings as well. And in Europe, it's been going on for some time. Um, I, I, I think that I mean, clinically, I don't think there's a debate against that, really. I mean, of course, one has to be a competent surgeon that goes without saying, and one has to have the right technologies for the proper IOL calculations and, and biometry and everything else that goes without saying, and you don't do difficult eyes and complicated, but routine, normal sized eyes, by a good competent surgeon, uh, I mean, clinically, I mean, patients love it. And I think that is something that I think this is going to, I think this should for like talk about pausing, Gary, this should force us all to really, really uh, think about this. And I understand the reimbursement part of it for sure. Um, I think that that has to be kind of worked out and maybe it won't be fully worked out. And one has to make a decision about what is their, you know, what's the greater goal here. But I think that th that's something we've talked about internally here too. Like, I mean, I think that's something that uh, is not even a doubt in our minds in many of our minds here in Canada on that. And it looks like Keith is, Keith is kind of chiming in here on the Q&A that they've been doing, of course, been doing that in Kaiser for, at Kaiser for years without any issues. We, ha we also have a question from, uh, from our friend Kathy McCabe. Uh, we'll throw this to you, Ike. Any ideas on home visual field testing? So are, are there some technologies that do perimetry really, really well that you would, that you would count on and, and believe in right now? Or, or, or do you really want your patients to come in? And, and how does that change if it's their initial field versus like a follow-up field years after their diagnosis of glaucoma? Well, the technology is there. And I mean, there already are some online, uh, you know, sites that you can do this. I mean, of course, the challenge is visual field testing is quite dependent on the, uh, on the illumination in the room. Uh, as well as the distance and, and other factors as well uh, and refractive error. So these are all things that have to be kind of optimized. It's not, not difficult to get a visual field to look for gross abnormalities. I think that, that's no problem. But when you're following a defect for glaucoma, for example, and want to follow that closely and monitor it, you need to really have you know, good test, retest, you know, repeatability, 
need to have a proper statistical uh, tool to be able to look at those things. And that's where the progression analysis makes it difficult. But to look at a di make a diagnosis, do you have a visual field defect? Do you have a homonymous hemianopia? I mean, that stuff's already, you know, prime time live, good to go. Uh, and for that purposes, I think it, it can be done. The challenge, of course, as I said, is that, you know, being as good as we are, for example, with our, you know, CETA technology and GPA technology for assessment and follow-up, like that's where we're lacking it. Now, I will say, you know, the ability to use augmented reality with, with, uh, with, with glasses and, and other tools, I mean, that I think has more promise because you can control the illumination environment and you can even track eyes even. So that's going to change the game. That stuff is just in trials. We, we've been trialing it. Um, I think that could be accelerated as well. And that could be a tool that patients can have on their own and do it as well. So that perhaps is more promising than just online. Yeah, just to piggyback on that, uh, what Ike said, you know, there are virtual reality, visual field type of things out there that you just, you put on and you can have your head in any position you want. I actually had a chance to use one the other day, did it in my house. You sit in your, sit on your couch and you could have the patient do it in their car. Um, they wouldn't even have to come into your building. Uh, you get a nice printout. Uh, it does show, you know, mean deviation, pattern standard deviation. It has fixation losses on it. Um, false positives, false negatives. To Ike's point, though, is progression analysis. You know, managing glaucoma, we want that. But you can get a nice printout, and it can do a 24-2. It can do a 10-2. Um, and, and so there is that technology out there that is very portable, very movable, and, and, and can be used in a lot of different uh, environments. Gary, you, you've talked about Shawnee and Chula's uh, website before. I mean, if we could get something like that, that we can, you know, uh, that we can then also uh, bill for, you know, and add it to a, a telemedicine exam, I think that's a total game changer. Um, I, I do want to just take qu a quick second to thank our sponsors. We, we can't have amazing uh, uh, professionals and experts from the field to come on without uh, support um, from our, our colleagues in industry. So thanks to Allergan and Johnson & Johnson, uh, Ari, Novartis, Santine, Kayla Pharmaceuticals, Diametrix, Avellino Labs, and Don Pei. Thank you guys so much for supporting this. Yeah, I, I want to echo that, Blake. Um, you know, this is a tough time for our partners in industry. You know, no one's buying anything right now. Um, and so it's, it's a tough time. And I really want to thank them for stepping up and sponsoring this program, delivering great content um, through our guests, obviously. And uh, in a time like this, it shows a lot of, of fortitude for them to, to sponsor this. So I really, really do thank our sponsors for, for stepping up. Um, so Justin, where do you think we go from here? Where, what is the next you know, two to four weeks look like in your practice? And then where do you think we're going to be at in two months from now? Yeah, I think, you know, for us in the next, you know, two to four weeks, it's going to be a very slow um, reopen where we're going to be probably, um, and, and, and we've talked extensively about this, of course, as a team. And, and uh, thankfully, I, I love my team. We have a wonderful team. And so we spend every day talking about this, really. But it's going to be a slow, it's going to be a slow roll initially. Um, we'll work in teams. We'll limit the amount of doctors that are in the office. And we're going to adopt more of a hybrid formulation of, of telemedicine where we kind of already talked about it, where for our glaucoma patients, they may need to come in and get a few tests and then we're gonna get them out the door. And we're gonna be at home doing our examinations from there with their records in front of us, with those exams in front of us. And then once we can get rolling with, with doing our surgeries, we're, we're gonna do that as quick as possible. We'll start doing some cataract evaluations more, again, telewise, where they come in, they get the exam they need, whether that be the IOL calculation, uh, quick topography, maybe a macula OCT, and then they're out the door again. And the rest of the conversation is done from a computer where we're talking about IOL options, uh, talking about expectations. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at, you know, looking to look, be in about, you know, two to four weeks. And, and hopefully with time, we'll, get, we'll all be able to get back to a little bit more normalcy. I agree, Justin. I, and I think what I would recommend everybody does, I mean, most of you have done some degree of, of amateur coding, I imagine, or online or with a web. You know, you know, everyone knows what macros are. You know, start making video macros. Have your standard macro video for glaucoma follow-up, for someone to add medication, someone who needs, to get, you know, further follow-up, someone who's a post-op, post-IOP, uh, whatever, someone's an IOL patient, whatever. Some of you already have this in your practice already. Many of you do, and they're pretty spiffy, but you know, you have your macro set up, so you don't have to keep on doing those virtual consults. Once you have the diagnostic testing, you have an algorithm in place where that patient's gonna get this video to watch, and they can basically ask questions then if they need to online or through a digital portal. 
Uh, I mean, that's kind of what I think. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that is not hard to do that's going to just add supplement to uh, enhancing a patient's experience. And I think patients would actually appreciate it more even, but minimizes, again, the, the, the face-to-face exposure that we're going to still be grappling with this for, I would say, uh, you know, for the rest of the year, honestly. Uh, whether we get, whether we have the curve starts declining now and then peaks again in the fall, whatever it is, we're going to be doing this for some time and we're going to still have to space around. We're still going to book patients accordingly. And so start getting, getting yourself in the digital space, start getting yourself, you know, uh, having the material you'll need to be able to do this efficiently. And, you know, people, people worry about how am I going to be on the phone for all this time? I, I think some, some people find it more difficult to do virtual consults. They feel that they take longer with the patient than when they're in their office. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but I think that's probably true. But if you can master that part of it, and maybe we need to have maybe we need to have a webinar on mastering virtual consultations efficiently with the right care and thoughtful thoughtfulness, but, but but delivering the right information and adding supplemental information to it. But that's the kind of thing where I mean triaging, algorithmic algorithmic planning, and then macro, so to speak, uh, you can really do this very efficiently and, and put a lot of patients through. We are trying to um, update all of our literature and videos so we have a Spanish version of, of all those things. Um, you know, we have um, a wonderful technician who, you know, is, is wanting to have ours and she's a na- native Spanish speaker. So we're like, okay, uh, get to it. All of our consent forms, all of our videos, everything, we're going to have now a Spanish version, which we, you know, we probably should have done a long time ago, but just in the busyness of the practice, haven't really had had the motivation or time to do that. But now that we're, we're shut down, you know, it's always, um, it's less efficient when we have people coming in who speak Spanish because there's, we need a translator or their family's translating and trying to communicate that. So that's one of those things where right now during the shutdown, we're trying to think a little bit ahead about what do we do um, once we're back so we can actually be more efficient and we're solving some problems proactively that have just sort of always been on the to-do list that never got off the to-do list. Yeah, I think, uh, Justin, I think it was uh, uh, your partner, Matt Jensen, up there that said, you know, no, no, uh, no technician should be uh, post-COVID the same designation or degree level they were pre-COVID. So, you know, every COA should be a COT. Every COT should be a COMT. You have the time now. So I think that that's, you know, any way that you can better your team is important. John, you know, one thing that, that we had just talked about was the idea of, um, you know, having this type of hybrid exam where you get testing one day and then you have the conversation after earlier on this uh, talk, you, you mentioned that with a really good Optos and a really good OCT Mac, I mean, you could determine a lot of the things going on. How has this kind of changed the way you practice? Are you still do, getting up close and personal with a indirect or, you know, exam, or can you do a lot of that uh, touchless these days and have a conversation after? No, like that's a great point. You know, in our clinic, um, we do have both of those technologies. And so we're trying to steer ourselves clear of the uh, slit lamp where we're a little closer to patients by getting some of those images, uh, things that we can sit out in the hallway and kind of peruse an, a, an optos exam, let's say, to look for any signs of a tear. It won't replace a depressed exam for finding a torn or detached retina, but it certainly can give you a good overview, can help you with grading retinopathy and other things such as that. So we, we are depending on that more than really face-to-face exam time with a few exceptions. Uh, I think that the way we still see these images from our referring doctors right now, at least, is, is about the same. You know, I mean, I'll get a text from a doctor that says, hey, I'm in clinic and I just saw an emergency patient and they'll send me a picture and it's wet AMD. You know, and you know that, you can recognize that and you can, you can set up a disposition for that patient really easily. And what it really comes down to is communication. You know, we need to have the best communication possible in the advent of any of this telemedicine, because if the patient doesn't understand what's going on and the urgency and the treatment options, and the referring doctor doesn't know what's going on in those scenarios, it's just a setup for disaster. So I think the linchpin to all of this virtual health is going to be maintaining great communication with the patient and then also with the referring doctor. Ike, I've got a question for you. You know, you have been sort of on the vanguard of, of doing video conferencing, sort of telecommuting into mu- to meetings. Uh, what, do you, what do you see as the future of ophthalmology slash optometry meetings? Do you think we're going to be having more virtual meetings? I think that's pretty obvious in the near term. But how do you think this changes the big box meetings that we all tend to gravitate towards? 
Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. You know, in pre-COVID, we've we've had, like you said before, Gary, we've had these technologies for years, and, and we know that we just haven't really been using it. And part of it is just we've been busy too, mind you. It's not just that we have, you know, we've been going to meetings only. It's been we've been busy, and now we have some time to do that. I mean, it, it'll change. People see the value. People have gotten better at doing these. The technology has improved. I think we do have to do better in terms of, uh, you know, you know, making it more immersive in the way we do these things. We're still very much standard didactic talk, whatever. Interact interactivity can be leveraged better. I think Zoom and other platforms have a long way to go to do that and make them more, make them more immersive. So I think that's something that, again, I challenge these companies to do that. Zoom doesn't take my calls, uh, but I think there's a lot of good ideas out there. I think that, uh, that being said, I, people still value, man, these these face-to-face -face meetings. I mean, that's not going to go away. And I don't think, um, I don't think that's going to be, you know, uh, a long-term issue, uh, you know, in the future. I think it's going to impact things for, for, for the next year or, or longer. But I think people are still going to see the value of that, particularly when it comes to technology and accessing it. I think that the, the, the big meetings have to think about uh, again, providing more value, particularly when it comes to the hands-on aspect of what we do uh, and the networking things that you don't get from a Zoom meeting. But simply just doing a talk, coming to a talk and listening to a talk and that's it. I mean, that stuff is, is yes, that stuff is going to potentially become more extinct. But what meetings have to do is make it more value for the, for the consumer, again, to be more immersive, more hands-on, the networking stuff, whatever. You can't get out of these Zoom calls. And that's where these meetings, I don't, I don't think, will go away completely at all. Justin, what, do you, what are your thoughts for the, on the OD side? Um, have, have you been seeing um, the Zoom-type meetings uh, being more popular lately? And, and where do you think the, things go? Yeah, no, they, they definitely have been more popular uh, and at this point, which they have to be, you know, um, from an education standpoint, uh, you know, an optometry required to get, you know, so many credits uh, per year. And, um, you know, a lot of our meetings, our regional, our state, um, our national meetings have, have been canceled like, like yours. And so there has to be some way to get this education. And so you're seeing meetings pop up, giving COPA proof credit, those types of things, you know. Um, for me personally, man, I just, I want to see my friends again. You know, some of my best friends are, are within the industry and my, my colleagues, you know, my optometrists and, and ophthalmologists too. And, and uh, you know, thinking about not being at these meetings in the future, uh, you know, it's just, it, it, it just brings a lot of joy to my life to be at those things with my friends. Um, but that's more selfish. Uh, but I do think that, you know, you have to have face-to-face -face stuff at times, you know, to to really connect with people. And so I do see it coming back probably slowly. And I think there'll be a mix of Zoom meetings for education as well as hopefully meetings that we can all attend. And then I'm hopeful that someday we're back to uh, full-fledged meetings. Instead of shaking hands, we'll probably be, you know, bumping elbows and things. But, uh, you know, that, that's at least we can be face-to-face -face again. John, over under on whether AAO happens this year. <laughs> yeah, so we just did a, um, a, one of these webinars for the new Retina Radio, and David Park was on it, and uh, last question was to ask him, you know, are we going to have it? And he felt extremely confident that we would have the Academy meeting in Las Vegas in November. Uh, so if I was a betting man, I think that we would definitely have it. He feels like by that point, we'll have better understanding around coronavirus, better testing for sure. We'll know who, who has immunity, who doesn't. Um, and so he thinks it's definitely going to be reality. Now, meetings between now and then, all bets are off, you know, because I just don't know if, if these smaller meetings can afford to do it, knowing that they may lose half of their participants. But I feel fairly certain that the Academy is going to have an in-person meeting. Yeah, I agree with that, Gary. I think that we may zoom in for the, those dinner talks, those Thursday night dinner talk type of things that you'd have with your practice. But the big box, uh, big dogs, are, it's, just, it's just too fun hanging out together. We, everybody wants to see each other. That's right. That's right. I mean, the good things with these meetings are I can, just, I can just mute you, man. You know, I can't do that in a meeting. It'd be a bit more rude. And by the way, I do have a question I want to ask, I want to ask John. But so for an amateur, should we go Nikon? Or Canon or, or, or something else? What, what do you think? What's the best brand? I'm firmly in the all of the above category. So if you know anything about my camera purchasing um, skills, I'm, I'm in favor of all camera types. Oh, he's a unifier. Okay. Yeah, John, John, I've actually bought two cameras from John. John is, uh, lives just a few miles away from me, so it's kind of fun that we get to do this. We practice you know, sort of uh, close together, and, and we see each other. So I've, I have purchased two of John's cameras for my wife, and, and to say that he likes cameras would be like saying, I like cataract surgery. 
uh, he is obsessed with it uh, as I am with, with cataract surgery. So, um, well, guys, thank you. One more thing, just another thing, Gary, because of what what, what Blake said and what he attributed to Matt about technicians kind of advancing, that should apply to us as well. Like, we should come out of COVID better trained in something, whatever it is. We should be better skilled at something in our profession, whether it's gaining knowledge, whether it's working on artificial eyes, whether it's a mindset thing, whether it's a personal development thing. We We may not get a degree from it, but we should be better at some things from this time we have. And if we haven't done that, we haven't capitalized on the opportunity that we've been given to do that. Now, not everyone has. I really realize with uh, school, homeschooling and with uh, potentially taking care of sick ones and other people like that. But I do think that, you know, we have to challenge ourselves. And I'm going to tell everybody here that we need to kind of uh, get a degree ourselves in something um, beyond what we're doing in the norm. Well, I've uh, I've actually gave myself a haircut. So I'm, I'm feeling that's the only thing I've cut so far. But. You know, I'm giving myself a little bit of a fade, so we'll see. I don't know what it's like in the back, so I don't have a mirror back there, but so far, so good. Yeah, I got to catch up to you, man. (laughs) (laughs) Swing on down to Kentucky. We'll fade you up, Ike. (laughs) I see you took care of John, too, it looks like. Yeah. I can take take care of that hair, Ike. Just come on over to my house. Yes, yes. Well, guys, thank you so much for your time today. And, and um, I love having conversations with colleagues. It makes me feel like I'm not alone in this. Um, and, and these are the kind of problems and opportunities that we solve best together. So I appreciate each of you for adding your insights today. Bryn Mawr Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson Johnson Vision, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Brynmar Communications LLC here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on in this webcast podcast.